You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Good morning. How's everybody doing, all right? Y'all afraid of God? Yeah. Not anymore. Sometimes, a little bit. Uh, it was funny reading the comments before. So many of y'all were afraid of a left behind. <laughs> that was a big deal, right? Just thinking that we were going to wake up and everybody would be gone and uh, we'd be left behind. That's scary. Yeah, I mean, you know, people are, are afraid of God. I, I, think, I think there's been plenty of people who have told me that they believe God has like a tally mark up in heaven or wherever God is. And God's like, good, but kind of bad, right? And then there was somebody who said to me, hey, I'm, I'm, um, I'm actually voting for policies that I believe are godly policies because I'd rather deal with bad leaders on earth than deal with eternal torment in hell for the rest of my you know, eternity or whatever it might be. And I was like, whoa, this person's super afraid of God that it's like messing with the way they operate and like voting policies and stuff like that. My wife, Juby, who played the guitar in such a beautiful way before, nice job, um, she, she cheated during a Bible verse competition, y'all. I just found this out, and I'm rethinking everything I know about her. Um, but, but she was cheating, and she was like, God, if you're mad at me, like, give me a sign that you're mad about this. And she said a centipede fell from the ceiling on her lap. And she was like, God's mad at me, right, because we, believe, we think that God's mad at us. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I would say some of us, some of us, if not all of us, like subconsciously, I think we're all kind of okay with God being an angry God or, or being afraid of God. I think we're a little bit all right with that. And, and we even sing it in some of our worship songs. I've, I've said this a couple times. One of the worship songs I used to love. I used to sing this with joy and gusto. And I used to sing, till on that cross, when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Like, God is wrathful, and God was angry, but now God's okay with me, right? Like, I, I, I sing that, and I believe it. And that's a scary thing, right? I was afraid of God. Those are the kinds of things we sing. And the thing that we kind of believe here in American Christianity is that we should be afraid of God because we're sinners. And because as sinners, what happens is now we're separate from God. And because we're separate from God, God says, you know what, I can't really be around you. I can't be close to you. In fact, you're deserving of death. You're deserving of death. And so what God does is says, well, you're all deserving of death. I can't really be around you. Somebody's got to pay for that. Right? Somebody's got to pay, and so what I'm going to end up doing is I'm going to end up bringing Jesus, and Jesus is going to pay for all of your sins, and Jesus is going to die the death that you all deserve to die. Right? This is called the substitutionary atonement theory. And I believe at the core, the very core of this theory makes me afraid of God. It's definitely a theory I used to believe. Now, here's the thing with this theory. At Forefront, we say that there are five differentials that we have. And these five differentials are the things that we believe will help us to usher in the next 500 years of Christianity. And one of them is called the, the fact that we don't believe in this substitutionary atonement theory. We want to talk about why we believe the cross is good news. And even more so, why the cross and the resurrection is even better news. So that's what we're going to talk about today in our How We Got Here um, Series, yeah, yeah. So we're going to talk a little about the cross. And as we've been doing in the past, we have been kind of like getting into history a little bit and like sort of getting into um, 
I don't know. We've been getting into the weeds, Sarah and I. And so before like you leave and go make breakfast, hang out with us a little bit. Get into the weeds with us a little bit. And let's talk about how we got this substitutionary atonement theory that said God was angry with us and wanted to kill us except for Jesus Christ who, who God killed instead. How do we get there? Okay. All right. Uh, first off, Sarah did this great message last week. And if you were here, then you learned about biblical interpretation. And in it, Sarah said some of the ways that we read scripture, we read it with kind of a plain uh, view of it, which means we think it's inerrant. Uh, we kind of take this English translation, we're like, this is it, this is what God said. And when we do that, it kind of does look in some ways like Paul especially is saying that... Um, is saying that it's because of the blood of Jesus Christ that we're okay, right? Or that the wages of sin are death except for Jesus Christ, right? And when we look at it without the context and culture behind it, that starts to make sense for us. And if we look at Scripture without context and culture as well, ooh, God's wrath is there. God is an angry God, and God does a lot of angry things, and God kills a lot of people who don't believe in God, right? So this idea that we might go to hell too, that we might be tortured too, uh, if we look in our scripture and just take a really quick glance at it, it's kind of there, right? The truth of the matter is people for about a thousand years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they never looked at scripture that way. They were always like, this, that's, that's not true. Our God is not an angry God like this. They didn't look at scripture that way. They recognized that what Paul was doing, especially in some of Paul's letters, was that Paul was speaking in a language of sacrifice, which is what the people he was talking to would have understood at the time. Usually when we're talking to people, we want to speak in their language, right? So we have to remember that. This is what Paul was up to. And so for about a thousand years, nobody thought that this was a theory that made any sense. Until about the year 1100, this dude came along named Anselm. We call him St. Anselm now. But what he did, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he came along and he said, hey, we're in this system. And the system we're in is called feudalism. Raise your hand if y'all remember feudalism from social studies. About how, okay, oh, most of you, good. Again, Angela's the only one that didn't raise her hand, y'all. She's a real troublemaker over here. <laughs> she says social studies was a long time ago. I feel that. It was for me, too. But in social studies, we learned about feudalism. What was feudalism? Well, Charlemagne was this king, and he stops being king, and now we have a more decentralized form of government, and I'm specifically talking about Western Europe here, because Western Europe shapes so much of our American Christianity. And so in Western Europe, we have feudalism where you have this lord. And the lord is the lord over your local area. And what you do is you give your pledge to that lord, and that lord in return gives you shelter and sustenance, and that lord gives you food, and that lord gives you whatever else it is that you need in order to live, right? That's what the lord does. Sounds a little bit familiar, right? Like we could almost like move out of feudalism and into Christianity. We pledge allegiance to the lord, and the lord gives us what we need, right? And what happens then is that transgression or crime used to be a judicial, uh, an area of judicial expertise, right? You committed a crime, you went before the law, you had a, a trial, things like that. Well, now that wasn't the case. Now if you committed a transgression, it went straight to the Lord. And the Lord is sitting there, and the Lord often would take it as a personal affront. Hey, I'm providing you with shelter and sustenance and all the things you need. Why would you commit a transgression against me? 
And so history shows us all the ways that some of these lords in Western Europe um, committed or, or, or just would punish people in the most heinous of ways through torture, through rape, through, through treasonous, like just, just beheadings and, and things of that nature. And, and so this is going on all throughout Western Europe at the time. And Anselm comes along and goes, isn't it interesting that I think God could actually be this way? Maybe God's like a feudal lord, Right? And he's like, maybe God is sitting there going, hey, I give you all that you need, and because I give you all that you need, your sin is an affront to me, and so there has to be proper payment for that. And that proper payment needs to be through death. Like, I need somebody's blood, I need torture in order to make this right again. And then this was picked up by a couple other people. Raise, nod your head, raise your hand if you've heard of John Calvin. Where's my Calvinist out there? All <laughs> yeah, right. What about Augustine? Augustine? Yeah, we got some Augustine folks. Yeah, they popularized this theory, this theory of substitutionary atonement. Now, Conrad Hilario says it best, and I'm going to read his, his uh, definition of substitutionary atonement just to make sure we're all on the same page. And it says this. It says that the purpose of Jesus' death was to satisfy God's justice. Thus, the primary force of the atonement was not directed towards restoring humanity or prevailing over the evil one. Instead, it served as a payment of God to God for sins committed against God. And so what did we do when we got this? Well, what we ended up doing is for the next however many years, I guess a thousand years or so, we sort of ran with this idea. We ran with it and we said, we said, hey, number one, God does not see us as good except through Jesus Christ. And so we start singing songs about us not being worthy. And we start preaching about how, how we're not good enough. In fact, when I was in Bible, did anybody else get t-shirts in Bible camp? Y'all go to Bible camp and get t-shirts? I got one t-shirt and the t-shirt said, scum of the earth. We are the scum of the earth. Like that's what it said. And like, there's scripture to back it up and everything, right? And that, that's what we start to do with this theory. Oh, we are bad. We are the scum of the earth. So we start from not a place of being loved and affirmed. We start from a place of being separate and not enough. Now, if somebody, if we were in um, a relationship, and we're in this relationship, and somebody in this relationship said, hey, you're the scum of the earth except for me and what I've done for you, now you're loved, would we let that person continue to be in that relationship? Would we? Or would we say, hey, this sounds like an abusive relationship, one that you might need to get out of. And yet, this is at the core of what we believe in this atonement theory. That we are not good enough for God. That God needs blood and sacrifice in order to be good. Right? So it starts us off that way. And then we use the idea of deserving. What do we deserve if we're the scum of the earth? Well, if we're the scum of the earth, we deserve what Jesus took on. And not only do we deserve what Jesus took on, your grandma deserves what Jesus took on. Your, your, your child deserves what Jesus took on. The nice guy at the bodega deserves what Jesus took on. And what did Jesus take on? Well, Jesus took on torture. And this is awful. It was awful what Jesus took on. Right? But now we're saying that God sees us as the scum of the earth and that we deserve what Jesus... So that means your six-year-old child deserves torture and your grandma deserves torture. You deserve torture. The guy at the bodega deserves torture. Right? This is an issue. Especially in humanity, right? World War I, World War II, there were weapons we were using that were hurting people. Not that that's good at all, but anyway, I'm getting to a point. Yeah, we had weapons that were hurting people, and the world got together. And they were like, hey, these weapons are torturous. Let's stop using them, right? Because most of us, in our right mind, understand that torture is subhuman. And yet, with this theory, we start by believing that we're the scum of the earth and that we deserve torture, and there's a God who would do that to us. 
But you know what? This God is a good God. And this God is a loving God, which means this God says, I'm not going to torture y'all. I'm just going to torture one of you. Okay? And it's just going to be Jesus. So Jesus is going to take on the sins of the world. And it's through Jesus that you are forgiven. And this word forgiven is an interesting word. Because the word forgiven means the cancellation of all debts. That's what it means. Now, for a while, I'd be like, isn't God a great God? Because I deserve to be dead. I deserve to be tortured. But my debt is canceled because of Jesus. But then when we get into the philosophical weeds, was that debt really canceled? Or did Jesus pay that debt? Right? That's not forgiveness. That's still God needing justice. Now, I've had people say to me, well, Jonathan, of course God needs justice. If you break a lamp, there's two options that you have. Either you've got to buy a new lamp or you have darkness, which means that somebody's got to pay one way or the other. To which I would say, maybe if we're human beings... Is God just a little bit higher than us? Is God a demigod? Like, does God sit there and go, hey, I'd love to forgive you, but justice is in charge here. And because justice is in charge, i gotta, I got to let justice be justice. You see, we've set up this whole economy of the cross that starts off by telling us that we're not good enough, that we deserve torture, and that we're beholden to justice in order to be forgiven. There's something broken about that. And yet, like I said, I think we like it. I think we like it. Why do I think we like it? I'll tell you why. We are Americans. You know what we love as Americans? Rugged individualism. You know what rugged individualism allows us to do? It allows us to be at the center of everything. And so we're seeing right now in our world, right, we're seeing a lot of, well, these are my rights. A quarter of a million people died, and we still got people out there going, but uh, it's my right to do this. It's my right. We grew up with that, right? We grew up with making fun of cultures that were communal cultures. No, we're individuals. And this theology that says that, that we, were, we were broken and then God paid the, and that Jesus paid the price for us, that theology uh, is one that puts us front and center. Now the theology becomes a transaction. Hey, do you believe? that you weren't good enough, but Jesus died for your sins and now you're forgiven, if you believe that, then you're not going to be tortured any longer. And you see, it puts us front and center because now I believe it, and so now I'm good. I'm taken care of. I don't have to think about systemic issues that are happening in our world. Racism, I don't have to deal with it because I am saved. Okay, Maybe if people were saved, we wouldn't have racism in the world. Right? I, I, oh my gosh, um, healthcare, why would I use my money to pay for somebody else? After all, God helps those who help themselves. And you know what? That's not even in our scripture. But this atonement theory does that. It makes us believe that we are at the center of this. So the only thing that we do, the only thing we have to do, is we have to make, other, make sure other people accept this, trans, uh, this transaction. Because if they don't accept this transaction, well, God's still pretty pissed off. And you're still going to burn in hell if you don't accept it. So get out there and help people do that. You see, this keeps us at the center so that when bad things do happen, or when we see a people that are hurting, we get to say stuff like, well, even if this happens, God's still on the throne because we're taken care of, right? Or, hey, don't forget, earth is in our place. Heaven is our place. And that's the kind of stuff that it does. We are absolved of any responsibility to be intercommunally connected, to be interrelationally together. We absolve ourselves of that because, hey, we created this transaction. I like what Brian Zahn says about it. He says this, and I'm going to read it for you as soon as I can find it. He says, Viewing the cross as payment to God for our personal debt of sin ignores the deep problem of systemic sin. 
When the cross becomes nothing more than paying off an offended God, we leave unchallenged the massive structures of inequality and sin that so grotesquely distort humanity. If the cross is Jesus simply purchasing our ticket, our get-out-of-jail-free card, then the principalities and powers are left unchallenged to run the world as they always have. It's a limiting theology. It's a limiting idea. It's a limiting theory. And not only that, but at its core, it's one that takes away ethnicity, tradition, culture, and other divinity narratives. It takes it away. I'm using my wife a lot in this message this week because we work together so closely, and I was making her talk to me about this stuff. And she talked about growing up in the Eastern Orthodox Church. And in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they largely said that this was a terrible theory that nobody wanted to deal with in the Eastern Orthodox Church. But, you know, we listen to Western white people, so it doesn't matter. But anyway, so it, they, they said no to that. And so my wife grew up without this theology until she was a teenager and people came along and started telling her she wasn't a Christian. She's like, why am I not a Christian? And they were like, well, you're not a Christian because you didn't accept the Lord Jesus Savior and, and know that you were, you know, you know, you were d destined for death except through Jesus Christ on the cross. And she was like, oh, oh, I guess I have to do that. And in doing that, completely gave up an entire Indian community, an Indian church, an Indian culture because she thought that this was the quote-unquote right way. This is damaging. It's a damaging theology. It's a damaging theory. And yet, we love being at the center, don't we? We do. People have come to our church and they've said, hey, we're not going to come back because y'all don't talk enough about my personal issues. You don't talk about my personal journey enough. You don't talk about how I can be better. You only talk about how we can be better. In fact, one person said these exact words. They said, you always talk about God loving the world. I want to hear more about God loving me. And this is a good thing in the sense that, yes, God does love us. <laughs> but it's a damaging thing when we think that it's only about us. So I just gave a bunch of terrible bad news about why this whole thing just sucks, right? Where's the good news in all of it? There's so much good news in this, all right? Let's talk about the hope that comes through Jesus Christ. And let's talk about the hope that comes through this cross. And let's talk about the hope that comes in the resurrection, because this is where we're going to get into it, okay? When we talk about Jesus on the cross, the first thing we need to know is that this is not a transaction, Let's pay attention to what it is. This is a broken system encountering perfect love and killing it. Okay, that's what this is. It is a broken system encountering perfect love and killing it. That's what it is. So, so any of us who have been victims of a broken system... Yeah, so has Jesus. And I always say this. I say this over and over and over again. If we want to know who God is, we look at Jesus. And so what God is showing us first and foremost through the cross is for those of you who are oppressed, those of you who have had less, those of you who have been victims, those of you who have been hurt by power, I stand in solidarity with you because I too have been hurt by power. I too have been hurt by broken systems. I too have been killed by those who want to keep the status quo. If we want to know where God is, God stands in solidarity with us in our pain. That's the first thing that the cross shows us. And if we want to know who God is through Jesus Christ, then we look at what God is doing on the cross and what is God up to on the cross. God is, oh, God is mourning on the cross. Mourning. My God, why have you forsaken me? And I used to think that was bad news. Now, what I, now I, I see it as like one of the most loving things that could have actually happened. Why? Because God is God, and God does not need to mourn if God does not want to mourn. 
And what does God do? God says, I love humanity so much, and I want to be close to humanity so much that I want to show them that I'm there with them in their mourning. I want to show them that in their pain, in their loss, I'm with them. For any of you who have ever been excluded, any of you who have ever lost a loved one, any of you who have been hurt and abused, I stand with you in that pain, screaming the same thing you're screaming, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm there with you. That's good news. God doesn't have to do that. God's God, right? Same reason God doesn't have to pursue justice in the way that we think. And yet God does that for us. What else is Jesus doing? Jesus is forgiving. Notice that forgiveness is not this transaction that happens after a death and resurrection and an acknowledgement of it. Notice that while Jesus is on the cross, Jesus is saying, forgive them, God, they don't know what they're doing. And what does it show us? It shows us that God sees our brokenness. God sees our t-shirts that say we're the scum of the earth. And God says about those t-shirts, hey, that's a lie. That's a lie. I've always seen you as good. I've always seen you as my child. I've always seen you as beautiful. And what the cross is doing is showing you in incredibly graphic ways that that's still happening, even in the midst of pain. Even in the midst of torture, you are still forgiven. You've always been forgiven. What else is Jesus doing on the cross? Jesus is pardoning. There's someone next to him, and, and, and Jesus says, he says, hey, you'll be with me in paradise. Right? That's what he says. And I love this because I look at myself and I look at all the things I did yesterday that at one time in my life would have been like, God's mad for those 16 things I did yesterday. <laughs> However many there were. 23. But anyway, God's mad about them, and I would have been like, I gotta get myself, I gotta get this figured out, and what God's going is going, Jonathan, yeah, maybe there's some things you want to figure out in your life, yeah. But here's the deal, you're not condemned because of that. You're not condemned. Here's what you are, you are loved because of it, right? You are pardoned over and over because of this. You are the one who I want to bring in, and I want you to see, see all the ways that power and military might and, and abuse and hurt, see all the ways that that's on the cross? You are pardoned, you are forgiven, you are loved so much that you get to change that. And Jesus is the way, the example in which we get to make that change. I say this all the time and I'm going to read it because it's the most important thing we say when I preach on this once a year. This is it. God didn't kill Jesus. God surrendered Jesus to our system. We should know that Jesus was sacrificed to the system, right? But on Sunday, and this is the big important thing, all right? Jesus was resurrected, and what does that tell us? It tells us that ultimately the cross is a new way of looking at the world. Forget the old system. Because when God gets what God wants, God gets a world organized around love through community, gets interrelationship, and God gets to show us that fear is no longer. You're afraid of God? Stop. Easier said than done. We fear no longer. We are the recipients of a supreme generosity of forgiveness and everlasting love. And as we often say, we say this all the time, the cross doesn't change God's mind about whether or not we're good. The cross changes our minds about God and shows us that God has been good all along. The cross shows us that there is a broken system, and the broken system hurts and kills, and resurrection shows us that there is a new invitation, that there is new life. And that there is new birth. We get to opt into the forgiveness. We get to opt into the pardoning. We get to opt into that love. We get to be reminded that we were never scum, that God sees us as good. It is a new birth. That's what this is. Diana Butler Bass says this, The new birth happens at the edges where people are willing to wander, to let go of what is settled and comfortable and walk into the desert. New birth. You know, when I started thinking about this, 
ironically enough, I was afraid of God. <laughs> I was like, ooh, by me believing that the cross is not this transaction whereas God sees me as good, am I going to get God mad? <laughs> and I think there's a few of us that feel the same way. In fact, this is scandalous. We talk about this with people and people are like, no way! God's wrath is real. God's wrath against me is real. People are afraid. And so maybe new birth does happen on the edges. Maybe birth, new birth does happen when we're all you know, moving out into something new. And I think at this church, we do usher in the next 500 years and we see the cross and then the resurrection as new birth. New birth means that we don't have to be afraid because you've always been included. I know there are people in this room right now who have not been included for various reasons. I know there are people watching right now that have been told that if they keep doing this one thing, they won't be included in eternal life or whatever that looks like. Right? That's a lie. You've always been included. You've always been loved. In fact, you've been so loved that God suffers with you on the cross. I think new birth means that we repent of thinking otherwise. Repentance is a scary word for some of us, but y'all have been here long enough to know that repentance means what? Somebody tell me, please. Change your mind. Thank Angela, you don't raise your hand, but you come through. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it. It means you change your mind. Change your mind. Change your mind about the status quo. Change your mind about power having to be what's in charge. Change your mind about, about this group of people being excluded. Change your mind about God being limited and God loved. Change your mind about God needing to perform the human kind of justice that we've come to expect, retributive justice and not restorative justice. Change your mind that this is it, right? There's something bigger. There's something more beautiful, right? Change your mind about the fact that it's all about rugged individualism. You see, we're all interconnected, so change your mind about who you're in community with because the truth of the matter is we're indebted in a community and in an interrelationship with everybody. Change your mind. New birth means that we are constantly working to help those who have been told that they're on the outside, that they're now on the inside. As a church, as a community, we continue to share that good news that you are never the scum of the earth, that you are loved so much that God wants you to partner with God in bringing new community, new place, new world. When we enter a new birth, when we walk together, it means we're walking together in community, being mindful of meditation and prayer together. It means that we are in small groups together, even when Zoom is exhausting. And it means that we do queer communion to help people uh, find safe space. It means that we have writer's guilds so that people hone skills. It means that we do all the things we're doing and continue to do virtually because we believe it's part of God's redeeming plan. It's part of new birth. It shows us a reflection of Jesus Christ on the cross and the resurrection that comes. That is what it is. New birth means we are standing up to the existing power structures that killed Jesus in the first place. We say that we're a political church. Why? Because Jesus was killed in political actions. Okay, that's why. So we stand up to those same structures that killed Jesus because God calls us into a new kingdom and a new way and a new world. New birth... New birth means we're generous towards one another. God is not a stingy God. God is not a stingy God who says, hey, I need to kill somebody in order to see you as good. God is the God that says, I love you so much, I've always seen you as good. I'll show you through Jesus. So let's not be stingy toward each other. Let's be generous as we help others change their lives in this community. Whether it's generous with finances, our time, with other people. Let's be generous because generosity is what's going to bring this new kingdom. 
And I want you to hear the good news. The good news is that our church, we say at the beginning every Sunday, is one of the many churches that we believe is ushering in the next 500 years. And part of it is by getting rid of a terrible theology around the, the cross and talking about the cross being the most beautiful way that we see God at work and God's love. So join into it. Enter into it. I know if I didn't have this, I would have quit Christianity a long time ago. There's no need to be afraid of God. God's not keeping tallies. You're not going to get left behind. And your identity is not going to stop you from being in communion with God and with others. In fact, God's sitting there. God's doing this with God's hands. If God has hands, I don't know. (laughs) And God's saying, I can't wait. I can't wait to see what the forefront community and all the others like it are going to do next. Because this is the good news. Let's receive it today. God, thank you, God, that we don't have to worry, and thank you that we don't have to be afraid. God, thank you that we have always been covered. Thank you that we've always been loved. Thank you that we've always been forgiven. Thank you that we've always been pardoned. And thank you for thinking enough of us always that we get to partner with you in bringing your new kingdom. So give us the courage to do that. Help us not be afraid and to walk into new birth today and every day. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.